Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Star Cells in God. This is the podcast where we look at the latest discoveries happening in the frontiers of science and look at the implications of those discoveries for the case for God's existence and the reliability of Scripture. My name is Fuzz Rana. I'm a biochemist and a Christian apologist. I work for an organization called Reasons to Believe. Uh, if you want to know more about our organization, www.reasons.org, you can also follow us on, on social media, rtb underscore official. And if you are watching this and you're not on YouTube, you need to go to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe One, and there you can get access to all kinds of great content. And then while you're there, don't forget to hit the bell uh, so that you can be notified when the next episode of Star Cells and God drops. Uh, I'm joined in studio today by my friend, Dr. Jeff Zwerink, who's a, an astrophysicist and a Christian apologist as well. And we're going to take turns sharing uh, a new discovery that's happened in science and, again, explore the implications for the Christian faith. So, Jeff, I'll uh, turn the floor over to you. Well, thanks, Fuzz. And, uh, you know, I've, I've uh, just kind of been thinking about how we live. And, uh, you know, I, I do a lot of research into artificial intelligence, just kind of interested in what's going on there. And one of the things that strikes me is uh, it's pretty remarkable, some of the advances. I mean, we've got this chat GPT made a big splash mm -hmm. uh, kind of recently because it can generate very good responses with a prompt and it just seems to be very lifelike or very thoughtful in the way it does things. And I, you know, I put thoughtful in quotes there, but it got me thinking, you know, it's like, here's this AI that is kind of now beginning to impinge on human level activities. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's not a new thing. I mean, we've had uh, computers that can play games better than humans. I mean, you'll go back to the nineties where, chess finally, uh, AIs finally were able to beat the grandmasters at chess. And there's kind of two ways you could look at that. One is it's cool. You know, this is a, a cool thing that we can advance that far. The other is what's going on. Are machines kind of not taking over the world, but they're kind of removing humans' ability to do things or no longer be the best at it. And you, know, you say, all right, chess is no big deal, but I can look and AIs now are capable of beating us at poker, mm -hmm. which is now you're not just playing a, a game, you're playing mm -hmm. people, if you will, and they're better at that. Uh, I just saw recently AIs are now uh, superhuman or expert level at Stratego, which I thought there are some games it's like it, those seem more chance-oriented than strategy-oriented, but... Uh, Nonetheless, you know, you've got stuff like that going on. Diplomacy is another one that they've done. But we're even using these AIs now to investigate, like, cancer drugs. Can we find drugs that are capable of attacking cancer without harming the, 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 the medium around, the cells around, the tissue around? And what was kind of fascinating, I had, I had a discussion with Sean Aish about that discovery on a previous Star Cells in God. But what's fascinating about that is that while we can while we can use these AIs to find drugs to target cancer cells because they look at the interactions and the folding and all sorts of stuff, one of the things that Sean brought up is that with simply toggling one flag, you can change that AI from finding a cancer drug to developing a bioweapon. Mm. 
they just these things just kind of go part and parcel. And so do we look at this as, wow, it's a great achievement or ooh, this is going to destroy the world type type mm-hmm. scenario. And, you know, I mean, you look at the politics and there, there's just lots of reasons for tension and anxiety. And, and uh, you know, I mean, even in the latest kind of coming out of the, the pandemic with COVID, what struck me is that there's there was a lot of fear mongering that happened in there. Um, I know I spent a lot of time as a parent trying to kind of protect my kids, especially from that. So largely so that they just look and say, hey, life is good. We want to keep, you know, we're dealing with stuff. We got to do that. But life is good. And why I think all that is interesting is I just ran across an article Mm. a number of a few months ago uh, published in the Journal of American Geriatric Society. And it looked at optimism, lifestyle, and longevity in a racially diverse cohort of women. So Mm. it was a series of studies over 26 years. So Mm. it was a long-term study where they've been looking at how does optimism relate to uh, longevity and uh, and how, how long people live and how healthy they are. Mm-hmm. And what is it's been shown, or you know, numerous studies have shown that optimism tends to play very well or tends to have beneficial life mm-hmm. effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, those studies tended to have clustered around uh, white non-Hispanic women. And so this study was looking to expand that and look at across racial groups. And so they looked, uh, you know, a number of different uh, racial groups to see mm-hmm. does it hold or is this just something for for uh, white non-Hispanic women? And and two things in particular they looked at: how does optimism affect uh, lifespan, and how does how is optimism correlated with achieving? Exceptional, exceptional longevity, which they defined as living larger than more than ninety years old, which is kind of interesting because I look at my family and I mean, yes, I, you know, ninety years is a long time to live, but I, I have a number of family members who are coming in upon that ninety-year range. In fact, my grandma just recently passed away, and she was ninety-nine, just shy of ninety-nine years old, wow. and so it's just weird to think that you know to have members of my family are in that exceptional longevity mm-hmm. category, but. What the, what they were doing in the study was trying to understand optimism. You know, get you know repeatedly survey these women and see what you know how optimistic they are, and then how does that correlate, or does that correlate with longevity and uh, lifespan? And one of the things that struck, or you know, I was kind of thinking about this is like, you know, when you're talking about optimism, how do you define that? So I had a conversation with my family around the dinner table the other night, and just kind of talked about, oh, you know, what is optimism and Actually, I'm going to throw that. I'll throw that question to you. How would you define it? Because it's it's hard to get a good definition. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, now that you asked me, <laughs> how do you define optimism? Uh, to me, I I would guess I would say it's probably an a, 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 a hopeful attitude mm-hmm. that that things are are going to go well, or a kind of an expectation that things are going to go well. You know, whatever that means, right? right. Well, and, and you know, I think that kind of generally falls in line with most of what I've seen. And so, I, you know, one of the questions I had in this study was, how do they assess or determine optimism? And what they use is this life orienta- life orientation test, a revised version uh, of it. And 
Basically, there are these survey questions, oh. you know, five options there. Uh, it was kind of interesting giving our pre-talk show discussion here. Um, but they basically have questions, you know, no right or wrong answers, but how do you assess going on here? You know, in uncertain times, I usually expect the best. Something can go wrong for me at will. I enjoy my friends a lot. It's important to keep busy. I don't get up easily upset. Overall, I expect more good things to happen than bad. And so I, I'm really not so interested in assessing the test as to say, okay, here's what they used and did a little bit of research to know that this particular test has had a, it's been studied a lot. It's been around, I think, since the mid nineties mm. and it's been shown to be a good predictor of optimism versus pessimism. Yeah. So there's a lot of background way to this. This isn't people just saying, Hey, I'm going to define optimism this way, right. but there's ways to do this. In fact, this to the test, this test is structured so that you, you, you'd like to say, okay, well, I can tell this question's measuring this. You know, there's things that are scored in reverse. And so there, there's yeah. a set of analysis of how do you look at the results from this and get an optimistic or pessimistic worldview yeah. or, or outlook on right. life. Well, because when you look at the questions, you can see that these are probably different aspects or facets of what it means to be optimistic. Right, right. So. And so what they did is they they studied these, you know, repeatedly gave this survey, looked at how these various women across these different samples, uh, uh, racial groups responded and how their life progressed. And then they said, all right, what sort of analysis can we do? Or let's perform an analysis and see, does optimism actually have an impact on lifespan and whether you achieve this living longer than 90 years. And so if you go to the next slide, this is a result of the study. And so the, the full samples there in gray, you got non-Hispanic white women, you got black women, you got Hispanic Latina women and Asian women. Mm -hmm. And they ranked them in, or they put them into quartiles. So in, in this, whatever the scores were, there's the, the least optimistic up to the most optimistic, and they put them in four groups. And then they compared the groups. And one of the things that stood out to me in this chart is that you look at the full sample and if you look at the lowest optimistic, you know, that's the reference. So there's no way, but the, the next quartile is higher. The next quartile is higher and the fourth quartile is higher. And that's true for all different groups of people. Uh, you'll mm -hmm. look at the non-Hispanic white, the orange climbs up, the black, the yellow one goes from, you know, really low and you know dramatic improvement uh you know asian has a much less improvement but what this sh shows or demonstrates is that this is not a western thing eastern thing it's a mm -hmm. as you have a more optimistic outlook on life you will have a longer lifespan in fact they they do a they quantify how it plays out for each group and on the next slide uh you know it kind of does that you know if you look at the top blue box there, it's that uh, comparing the highest versus lowest quartile, the highest quartile of optimism had a 5.4% longer lifespan than the lowest quartile. Mm -hmm. And that was true across the different ethnic groups. It was mm -hmm. for white, uh, non-Hispanic, it was 5.1%. For blacks, it was 7.6%. For uh, uh, Hispanic Latina, it was 5.5%. And for Asian, it was 1.5%. Mm -hmm. And then one of the, the follow-ups they wanted to do with this was 
is this just a correlation we're finding mm. that is it's some other effect that we're just seeing mm. this correlation and one of the things they adjusted for so I, you know i will say they they developed a number of models for this and they adjusted for all sorts of things that might mediate this you know baseline age they adjusted for race and ethnicity they adjusted for education mm. uh, marital status income occupation health insurance region of where you lived um, and then they also went in and adjusted for chronic health conditions and depression. Mm. So it isn't just, you know, the ones that live longer were not depressed. So they, they adjusted for all those factors. And then the last one they adjusted for was lifestyle because, you know, kind of intuitively makes sense. If you eat a good diet, stay a mm. uh, healthy body weight, exercise, you're going to live longer. So they also adjusted for that. And what they found was that of this increase in life expectancy, health or lifestyle factors only accounted for about a quarter of that. Mm. So in other words, having an optimistic outlook actually gives you a longer lifespan and gives you a greater chance of reaching this. You Even know, if you sit on the couch and eat Doritos and, and uh, ho-hos. That right? probably has other impacts, but it, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to assess that. What I do know is that optimism helps. That probably doesn't help. <laughs> but given people who just sit around on the couch, if you have a more optimistic outlook, you're going to live longer. Right. And so, you know, I just kind of thought about this kind of from a you know, it's a, it's a cool study. I think that you can even tease this out of tease this data out of uh, a population of people. But it did just strike me that when you look at scripture, um, there is no hey, Christianity works when the times are good. Mm. It's like you know, you got people in prison, you've got people who are persecuted, mm. and there are just numerous passages throughout Scripture which call us mm -hmm. to have an optimistic outlook, not a uh, Pollyanna, and I'm going to use that in the current term, not the way it was originally, kind of, you know, everything's unicorns and rainbows, but looking at what life is really going to bring still have an optimistic outlook. And I just wanted to share two Scriptures mm -hmm. that stood out to me. And I again, I find Scripture is replete with this, so this is just yeah. kind of two that stood out to me. Uh, passage I've memorized out of Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all people. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Or uh, you, know, you could paraphrase that. Don't be pessimistic about anything. Mm -hmm. But in everything, by prayer and pleading with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then there's this goes on to say, whatever's true, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, those are the things that bring hope, mm -hmm. bring optimism. It, this passage, you know, in, in terms of this study is basically saying, hey, life is good. Live like life is good. Mm -hmm. And shortly thereafter, you know, Paul is saying, I've learned how to be content in all circumstances. I can get along with humble means. I can get mm -hmm. along with great wealth. And he's writing this from prison. Right. And so, you know, here's Paul living out this optimistic, hopeful lifestyle. You know, I mean, right. there's passages where it says, you know, to rejoice in your persecution because persecution builds perseverance and perseverance, proven character, and proven character gives hope, mm -hmm. which is, you know, at least a form of optimism. You know, that's kind of mm -hmm. what you said, this general sense of things are going to be good and life will work out. Mm -hmm. 
And, and one that I, another one that I've uh, just one more passage, and then I'll kind of you know I'm curious your comments on all this. You know, Psalm one verses one through three: Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And what will happen? Be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. Mm. I mean, what a hopeful, optimistic scenario. You're going right. to be, your foundation's going to be secure. Right. You're going to weather the storm. The leaf, you're going to produce fruit. You're going to, pro- that's an optimistic outlook to life, right. as opposed to the wicked, which are, you know, dried up like chaff and blown away. And it just strikes me that this, mindset of life is good, have hope, there's purpose, aligns very well with this idea that we see in the way life works, that if we're optimistic, again, not just ignoring reality, but looking at reality and still choosing Mm -hmm. to look at life from an opposite way, you'll see health benefits from that. And to me, this is a piece of evidence and you know in the big puzzle that says yeah what scripture says and what creation reveals they both align well with one yeah. another yeah you know this is uh, this is interesting because you know on one hand it gives you confidence in the biblical text because mm-hmm. the wisdom yeah. of the text is being borne out by by science but i think what's i think important to realize is this this call for optimism, if you will, from Scripture, to be thankful, to rejoice in all circumstances, not to be anxious, is is really a—should be a natural outworking of the, the main message of Scripture, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, we are—have the opportunity to be in a relationship with our Creator, that our right. sins are forgiven, you know, that, that, that our eternal destiny is secure in Christ— that, mm-hmm. that the outworking of that message is should naturally be optimism, right? And that maybe our tendency as humans is to to get focused on the circumstances and to to fail to remember the big picture that we're part of, right? Well, you know, Hughes talked a lot about you know we live in a two creation world that this isn't all there is. There, yeah. you know, I, I've thought about that just kind of from a worldview perspective, you know, for a Christian perspective, a Christian worldview, it makes sense to have hope. In part, I can look at all that's going on, and even in the midst of the worst circumstances, Mm -hmm. God is who he says he is. There's an anchor. There's a security. That relationship is secure. He's working it for good. Mm -hmm. Whatever bad's going on, I can have hope and a confidence. And even if I die, there's still not a dread because... That's right. I know where the ultimate, you know, where I will ultimately be, and I've, I, you know, I just kind of wonder if you take a, a naturalist perspective, you know, as you're saying that hope is a natural outworking of the message of scripture. Not that a naturalist can't have hope or optimism, but it does seem like it runs counter to the very nature because ultimately there is no purpose. We could right. convince ourselves that we have a purpose or right. we can make up reasons to have a purpose, but I have yet to hear an explanation of how naturalism has purpose inherently that is compelling, if you will, in the same right. way if God exists, there is inherently compelling reason to have purpose. So yeah. 
That's a real good point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, in, in that in in large measure is some of the, I think, intense motivation behind ideas like transhumanism, mm. you know, where, hey, can we somehow extend our life expectancy to a, a practical immortality through the, by modifying our bodies with technology. Right. Right. You know, and so you're you're trying to find some hope and some purpose and some destiny in what science and technology can deliver. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, necessary in a, a materialistic worldview, you know. Um, yeah. and, and so that's the only source of ultimate hope is what science and technology can can accomplish for us. Right. Well, and, you know, I, I think at the bottom line here, optimism clearly has health benefits, and I think encouraging people to live optimistically is a good thing. Right. I think there's a further question in there of you can have optimism that may be built on false hopes or false premises. Right. I am interested in how do you build an optimism that is based on reality and what's really true. And so right. I think that's I think that's where Christianity just wins in spades when you right. look at all the other worldviews. Yeah. So I thought, like I said, I thought it was pretty fascinating no, discovery. It's great. So. It's great. Great. Yeah. I, I, you know, again, you know, it just shows the the the. I think it it gives makes scripture trustworthy to know that right. the biblical wisdom is borne out by the science. Amen. Yeah. So what do you have for us today? Okay. Well. Uh, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, junk DNA, one of my favorite topics. But uh, to kind of set the stage, here's a, a painting of the Apostle Paul by Rembrandt. And the reason why... I'm, Wait a second. Rembrandt lived quite a ways after Paul. He did, oh, okay. yeah. So it wasn't a... <laughs> Paul didn't sit for that portrait. Okay, all right. Uh, he's, he, but I'm not sure what, what was the inspiration. But uh, anyway, uh, in terms of the subject. But... You know, the, the reason I'm, I'm showing the Apostle Paul is because when you look at his life, it represents what you might say is one of the most dramatic turnarounds mm. in, in human history, where you have Saul of Tarsus, who is a Hebrew's Hebrew, right. who is so uh, zealous for, for God at, from, a, from his perspective as a Hebrew scholar, that he's persecuting the early church. Right. He's persecuting the first Christians. Uh, and and yet his Damascus Road experience where he encounters Christ, you know, changed him from the Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle, who mm-hmm. instead of now uh, persecuting Christians, became one of the, the people that took the gospel message to the Gentiles. Right. And, uh, and, and that type of Damascus Road experience, I think, is happening to some degree within within science and hmm. within genomics, where we now are having a, a very different perspective on, on the human genome and certain elements in the human genome that were originally thought to be junk DNA. Okay. Right. So, you know, uh, when the human genome was sequenced, the rough draft was available in 2000, the initial reaction was about 95 to 98% of the human genome consists of non-functional junk DNA sequences that represent kind of a the, the biochemical scars of an evolutionary history, mm-hmm. you know, and and what we have seen in the last two decades is that that perspective on junk DNA has radically changed. It hasn't merely been a a a, 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 fl- a flash of bright light that <laughs> has caused that change in perspective. It's been hard fought, in the sense that it's based on a, an accruing number of studies that 
indicate that what we thought to be junk DNA is actually functional. And it's now at the point where I'm beginning to see more and more studies being published where people are adopting the perspective that junk DNA sequences must be functional, and therefore now we're going to study and seek out what their function actually is. Okay. So it, it's almost a change in, in mindset. But, but this you know, Damascus Road experience is captured to some degree in the statement made by Eric Green. This would have been made probably 2011, 2012 now, when phase two of the ENCODE uh, results were released. And he said... During the early debates about the Human Genome Project, researchers had predicted that only a few percent of the human genome sequence encoded proteins, the workhorses of the cell, and the rest was junk. We now know that this conclusion was wrong. Most of the human genome is involved in the complex molecular choreography required for converting genetic information into living cells and tissues. Uh, and and so, so so it it is true that a few percent actually code for proteins and yes. which are the workhorses. So that part of the statement is correct. Right. The rest of it being junk is what's what he's saying now is that's not the right way to look at it. Yeah. In other words, these sequences are are serving uh, different functions gotcha. uh, beyond coding. Most of those sequences seem to be playing a regulatory role where they're involved in, the, in turning genes on and off. And then mm -hmm. if a gene is turned on, regulating the, the expression of that gene, uh, kind of like the volume control okay. you know, on, a, on a stereo or something like that. So that's what he's, he's saying. Uh, but one of the sequence elements that we could include uh, in, this, in this story would be uh, endogenous retroviruses, which uh, are shown here in terms of the percentage of their contribution to the human genome. But roughly 8% of the human genome is made up of endogenous retroviruses. And uh, these sequence elements, again, were considered to be junk and were considered to be the, uh, their origin was considered to be uh, a, a, a retroviral origin where they represented a retroviral infection where the retroviral DNA or genetic material became incorporated mm -hmm. into the human genome and then be, wound up being rendered non-functional and now just persists in the genome as, as a remnant of an ancient viral infection. Uh, but even endogenous retroviruses are now being recognized as, as playing important functions and that's the, the, the topic of this particular paper that I want to talk about, which was published at the, the very end of, of 2022. And it's by a team headed up by researchers from uh, Cornell University. And to appreciate what these researchers have done, a very quick review of, of what an endogenous retrovirus is would be helpful. And so mm -hmm. this is a, a slide that shows... Um, uh, what a virus, what a retrovirus looks like. So the place to begin is to focus on the innermost portion of the diagram where you see the, the string of bead-like, the bead-like string. And that is representing the genetic material of the virus. And for a retrovirus, that genetic material isn't DNA, it's actually RNA. You also see these little moon, half-moon-like structures in there, crescent moon structures. Those are representing different uh, enzymes that are encapsulated with the genetic material. And surrounding that is a protein capsid, 
that's called a nucleocapsid. And then surrounding that is a membrane. And embedded in the membrane are these envelope proteins. And it turns out that those envelope proteins serve as the attachment point for the virus as it interacts with the cell. So there are surface proteins on the cell that can function as receptors that interact with the envelope protein. And once that interaction takes place, there is a a process in which the the nucleocapsid or the viral capsid containing the genetic material enters into the cell and then the nucleocapsid dissolves away, revealing the genetic material and the enzymes that are associated with it. And so in the case of uh, a retrovirus, again, that genetic material is RNA, mm-hmm. and that RNA can then uh, be operated on by an enzyme called reverse transcriptase, which is encapsulated with the genetic material in the retrovirus. And that converts the genetic material from RNA into DNA. And then that, that DNA uh, can remain in the cytoplasm. It, it actually can a- enter into the nucleus of the cell and then can, uh, using the cell's machinery, essentially make copies of the viral RNA that then make their way to the ribosome where the ribosome reads that information and, and converts uh, the viral genetic material into proteins. Okay. Uh, and there are different proteins, like the proteins for the nucleocapsid, the pro- envelope proteins, uh, the enzymes mm-hmm. associated with the retrovirus. And that RNA that is produced through the reverse transcription process, uh, as well as the, the proteins then assemble into a viral particle that then can be released back into the extracellular space and infect go and infect another cell. So basically the virus using these uh, enzymes, is it kind of like the spike proteins on the COVID? Well, is the, it similar the, to that? or the, is that... the spike proteins on COVID would be, would correspond to the envelope proteins. The envelope proteins. Okay. Yeah. So that that's what attaches the cell, comes into the cell effectively, uses the shell machinery to right. reproduce itself right. in some fashion. And then somehow some of that DNA or the RNA from the right. virus can make its way into the genetic signature of the cell itself. Well, I mean, what, what I just described there is, is there's no incorporation of the ge- viral right. genetic material. But there is an enzyme called integrase, which is also packaged with the uh, retroviral genetic material that can take that that viral DNA Mm-hmm. and incorporate it into the host genome. So that can happen as well. And then when that happens, that DNA can then be uh, transcribed and produce more viral particles, or it can under, undergo latency where it just becomes inactive and then can be activated at a later point in time. Uh, so so, so like, these endogenous retroviruses are where that DNA gets put into the genetic material and somehow right. that's pa- you know, it becomes part of... Right, you know, like the zygotes or, or the the reproductive cells right. that gets passed on to future generations, presumably right. in an inactive format. Right. So when okay. it, when the virus gets incorporated into the DNA, that's called endogenization. Okay. Uh, but once a virus is endogenized, it doesn't necessarily become an ERV sequence in the genome as okay. such. Uh, it, it's just there again, either in an active or a latent form. Okay. That where it can be activated later on. Uh, but that's not necessarily 
that's not necessary for the retroviral life cycle to happen. Right. Okay. It's it's one of the it's one of the the options, but it's not necessary. So so this happens sometimes and not others. So just yep. you know you wouldn't expect to see every virus or every retrovirus to have right. this, but that's why when you see these in there, it's like this right. is the thought process of what's right. going behind. Right. It. Okay. So endogenization can happen, but it doesn't always okay. happen. And now this is a, a cartoon showing the uh, the 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 retroviral genome. This is a generalized depiction of it. So you have two ends that are called the five prime and three prime long terminal repeats. Mm -hmm. The five prime long terminal repeat contains sequences that function as what's called a promoter. So this is where RNA polymerase would bind uh, when this genetic material is copied into DNA. So is this in the cell's DNA or is this in the vir this viral is the virus's DNA? DNA? This is the virus DNA. Right. This is the virus DNA. Well, okay. virus RNA. Right. That then will be converted into DNA. So that, that five prime long terminal repeat is where an enzyme called RNA polymerase binds mm -hmm. that will then read that genetic material and make a RNA copy. Gotcha. So this can either happen when the genetic material is just free in the nucleus or if it is has become endogenized. Right. And then there are there's the three prime and that's containing sequences that function as a transcription terminator. So it, it, the RNA polymerase hops off mm -hmm. the, the DNA at that point. And then there are, are these four proteins, uh, GAG, PRO, PAL, and ENV, and they uh, it contain information needed to make proteins like the, for example, GAG makes the nucleocapsid protein, PRO and PAL make uh, an enzyme called a protease, reverse transcriptase, and integrase, which get mm -hmm. incorporated into the, into the uh, again, the viral capsid with the genetic material. And then there's the envelope protein. Right. And, and so, again, this is the, a diagram showing that life cycle where um, when the uh, transcription of the viral genetic material takes place, either again with the proviral DNA or the endogenized DNA. Uh, those are the, the the proteins that are being produced that will then either be used to assemble the capsid. They will get integrated into the cell membrane at the Golgi apparatus, so that when the virus is released into the extracellular environment, again those envelope proteins will surround the mm -hmm. the, the capsid as part of the bilayer structure. And again, the, the enzymes get incorporated into the capsid. Now, this shows how the virus can be transmitted from one person to the next. So if the virus is infecting what's called a somatic cell, these would be basically all the cells in your body except for the sperm or the egg cells, the, okay. the, the gametes. Uh, if they're infecting somatic cells, then you're going to have, in effect, a horizontal transmission where I can transmit viral particles to you. Right. Um, you know, through that, as the virus particles are released into the extracellular environment, they then become, they can become associated with mucus and, and right. that type of thing and be, you know, transmitted for, to, the, to another person, another host. Now, if that genetic material, or if the virus, sorry, invades a gamete, a sex cell, mm -hmm. like a uh, egg cell, sperm cell, and if it gets incorporated, if it becomes endogenized, it can now be transmitted to the next generation, right. to the, that individual's offspring. 
and that's considered to be a process of infection as well. That's referred to as a vertical transmission as opposed to a horizontal transmission. Right. Okay. And so this is why many people consider the presence of endogenous retroviruses in genomes to be such powerful evidence for common descent mm. is because um, if let's go to the right side of, of the diagram first, that once the, the, endo, the retrovirus becomes endogenized, uh, because it, it can, because the RNA, it can be transcribed to make RNA, uh -huh. and that RNA can then be reverse transcribed into DNA, uh -huh. and that DNA can then be incorporated into the genome, you can actually get what's called an expansion of the copy number, where a single ERV sequence or a single right. endogenized yeah, yeah, retroviral sequence can actually duplicate itself. Right, and, okay. And then that can be, those sequences can be inserted randomly throughout the genome. So you can increase in copy number. Also, if that sequence undergoes any kind of mutation, it can actually become disabled so it's no longer able to produce a retrovirus. And mm -hmm. at that point, it, it, it's, it's an endogenous retrovirus, but it's simply not, no longer functional. So, so in that scenario, it becomes you, you could in principle trace, hey, this is where it was infected or where it first happened. And then as the copy number increases, you can compare copy numbers from different organisms and right. where there are mutations in it. That also gives markers of events that happened. So you could build up this history of right. it was transmitted here, 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 and right. these, these organisms got Because it, of so. the vertical transmission and because, right. and because of these other mechanisms where you increase copy number or... Mm -hmm. Again, they become disabled when you compare, like, the human genome with the genome of the great apes. Right. We see uh, the, the same ERV sequences or very similar ERV sequences in the same location with the same copy number. Right, okay. And so the view there is that, well, the only way to explain that is if mm -hmm. the common ancestor was infected Right. And that, that is now retained in genomes as the different evolutionary lineages diverge. So many people see that as, again, very powerful evidence for common descent. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and, and again, this is just reminding the people that are watching this that 8% of the human genome consists of endogenous retroviruses, where, again— That's many, a pretty large number. It is. It's, it's a significant fraction mm -hmm. of the genome. And, again, that many of those— ERV sequences are actually shared, and there's different classes mm -hmm. of ERVs and, 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 and things like that. Um, yet, what this, and so the, the common view has largely been these ERV sequences, again, are remnants of an ancient viral infection, and they really are serving no functional role whatsoever. Right. But as part of this whole Damascus Road experience that's happening in genomics, we now are recognizing that ERV sequences are actually functional. Okay. And, and they, they serve different functions. One of the chief functions seems to be that they serve as an antiviral defense mechanism mm. for cells. And in fact, they are considered to be now part of what's known as the innate immune system. Mm. Our immune okay. system has an acquired immune component and an innate component. And so it's part of this innate defense against viral infections. It's not protecting against specific viruses, but, but viral infections mm -hmm. in a broad sense. And so, so it, you know, maybe jumping ahead to where you're going with that, but if 
the genome is considered, hey, there's these little bits of coding and then other stuff in there. You've got all these things that look like viruses. They're in the, they're not in the important part. You have to explain how they're there. They look similar. Right. Looks like an ancestral history to it. Right. Um, if they have function, you now have a different way to look at that in that, right. you know, it's so, okay, so great apes, humans, and chimpanzees, they're all going to be encountering similar sorts of things. If they provide part of the immune system, they're all going to encounter similar sorts of diseases. Right. They have similar sort of immunity. So it's not... It may be that there's a history to it still, but right. there's two different ways of looking at it now. Yes, yes, that's okay. that's exactly right. And so this this particular paper is, again, looking at um, these, e these ERV sequences, endogenous retroviral sequences, as potentially, again, serving mm -hmm. an antiviral role. And in this particular paper, they focus on what you might call ENV-like sequences. These would be sequences that resemble retroviral envelope right, okay. uh, protein genes, right? And so again, you know, here's the, the, a reminder of the viral genetic material. And so they were looking at the, the green ENV type sequences. And what they noted, it, what they did in the study is they, they, they noted that in animal studies, people have identified ENV sequences as serving an, an antiretroviral role. Mm-hmm. And the question is, is this true in the human genome? Okay. Right? Nobody has studied that. So they surveyed the human genome for ENV-like sequences and discovered, oh, approximately 1,500. And a, of half of those have, are actively transcribed. So they can... Okay. Um, uh, but they noted that the transcription is tissue-dependent, where, where most of the... Generally speaking, those sequences are not transcribed. In, in most tissues, except for uh, gametes, mm -hmm. as well as uh, embryonic cells, early hmm. stage embryonic okay. cells, and placental cells. Uh, that's where you see these ENV sequences being transcribed. And so they, they ended up focusing on a single ENV-like protein called suppressin, just as a case study mm -hmm. for how does this, how is this ENV sequence what, what is, is this ENV sequence actually serving a, an antiretroviral role? Okay. So instead of studying all of them, they just chose one to focus on. And what they discovered... So, so there's 1,500 of them. Some of them are trans or transcribed in different right. types of tissues. They chose one that happened to be transcribed in the gametes and embryonic right. cells right. and are asking, okay, so what does it do in, in doing in, that? In or its, why in, is it being transcribed? And it's representative in that, again, most of those ENV-like sequences that are transcribed are have a similar transcription profile. Gotcha. Okay. So it's it's a, a good choice. And um and so what they they did is they uh looked at um the uh they looked at human cells in in culture and exposed those human cells to um to viruses. Mm -hmm. And they showed that when the suppressin protein is transcribed, it actually protects those cells in culture from okay. retroviral infections. And, and so the thought is that in the early stage of fetal development, where you have, again, embryos in these early stages, at this point, there's no tissue whatsoever. These are just right. cells that are haven't even the embryos haven't even attached necessarily to mm -hmm. the endometrium, uh, and or if they have attached, they are just in the very early stages of 
of the formation of the placenta. And they, they note that this is where you see very high expression hmm. levels mm-hmm. of these ENV-like proteins. And they speculate that this is actually providing a defense to the embryo at this stage where it has no other defense against retroviruses. It's completely vulnerable at this point. And well, and it, it would seem like retroviruses at that stage ha- would have a much larger effect. Okay, okay, so I get a, you know, I get some sort of retrovirus. Okay, yes. it's going to reproduce in my cells, but I largely have a developed body. Whereas and, and you an introduce immune, it and an, immune and an immune system, and you introduce it into something. You know, I mean, you're talking right hundreds and maybe thousands of cells. Right. You've changed the course of where the body's going. In yeah, doing you probably that. it probably would end up killing off <clears throat> right, the, okay. off the embryo, uh, and and what they noted with suppressin is that again it's expressed at very high levels in embryonic cells and in placental cells, hmm. where they think that this may also serve as an ongoing defense uh, mm-hmm. against retroviruses in the placenta itself, okay. in the placental tissue throughout the duration of the pregnancy. And uh, this is the mechanism that they think is wor- how it's working, is uh, is the ENV like remember envelope proteins bind to proteins on the cell surface. That's right. the point of attachment. So it turns out that suppressin will interact with a a, an, a, a protein called ASCT2, which is a an amino acid transporter. And so they think that there's either one or two things going on, or maybe both is that the suppressin that is produced um, during in, in the early stages of the embryo formate, you know, development would be secreted into the extracellular space and just bind to the surface of, the, of these receptors blocking retroviral binding. So does it, does it bind to the cells? Yes. Receptors or to the viral receptors? It bi- binds to the protein on the c- Protein on the cell, okay. On the cell. In so it basically words, just puts a coat around things and says, right. these, there's right. retroviruses so, no longer so the, combined. The, the, the viral receptor proteins on cell surfaces are not produced to be viral receptors. They're produced to serve yeah. other metabolic functions, but that the virus will just recognize them. So mm-hmm. like yeah. COVID, the spike protein binds to, uh, um, oh gosh, I'm drawing a blank. Um, uh, the uh, angiotensinogen mm-hmm. converting enzyme, right, right. Th- that's on the surface, right? And so it's that's so this amino acid transporter mm-hmm. is a is a a, a a common receptor for certain retroviruses. And right. So so the suppressin because it binds to that, if it's secreted into the extracellular space, will bind, and by binding it prevents the virus from binding. Or during the the biosynthesis of this. Uh, amino acid transporter. It could be that the suppressant actually interacts with it inside the cell before it is introduced to the cell surface, and it's introduced to the cell surface as a as a complex. So it's so it's just inactivated when it comes. It's to It's inactivated cell when it comes okay. to the surface. This generalized mechanism is called competitive inhibition. Okay. And so th- that, but what what's interesting is that the ability of these ERV sequences now to serve in a retroviral as a retroviral defense mechanism is predicated on their sequence similarity to retroviral (laughs) genetic material, Mm -hmm. right? And the ability of suppressin to operate is because it's similar to the envelope protein in its uh, structure. So so if this were 
I mean, you know, in principle, you could come up with some other scenario where this, right. this, you may provide this blanket or this envelope protection. The fact that it mirrors what the retrovirus or right. what these retroviruses are going to do actually makes it effective in what it's doing. Exactly. If it were too far from that, it just wouldn't work. Yes, exactly, okay. exactly. So now this idea is is part of a generalized model that's emerging for how ERVs offer this anti-retroviral defense. And it's all competitive inhibition. So, for example, in this diagram, it's a bit quite busy. But what happens is that when you have ERV sequences that are transcribed, and, and again, these are transcribed at high levels, usually during retroviral infections. This is a, a general mm -hmm. rule, rule of thumb. Okay. Um, is So even for even like somatic cells where the ERV sequences are generally suppressed, people have observed that when there's a retroviral, active retroviral infection, a lot of times those ERV sequences are no longer suppressed and they actually are transcribed. Mm -hmm. That, that, that um, ERV RNA now that's being produced can interact with the viral RNA, the retroviral RNA, and, and, and this is called an anti-sense inhibition. Mm -hmm. So it, it just basically forms an RNA duplex and shuts, it, such, shuts down the, the, the viral RNA. Or oh, that's cool. Okay, so you you can have it to where it will inhibit the ability of the virus to bind right. to it. Or right. if it comes in, it just basically wraps it up and says, "Don't do anything." Yes. Or, oh, well, that's pretty cool. Or or that ERV sequence can actually that RNA can actually get in incorporated into the nucleocapsid mm -hmm. instead of the viral retroviral RNA, and that happens. Now you have an impotent virus. Right. Okay. People have shown that there, the other protein that's involved in forming the nucleocapsid, the GAG protein, is also expressed at high levels mm -hmm. in some cells. So that that's going to interfere with nucleocapsid assembly. So you've got basically four different forms of competitive inhibition. So it's not just simply the ENV proteins that are at work, but the GAG protein, right? Yeah. The the the, the, the and the RNA itself. So this is a very nice mechanism that can provide generalized defense against retroviral infections, mm -hmm. either, uh, uh, and, and if it's expressed at very high levels in the embryo, that again is is creating a situation where that embryo is protected. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is people have shown that ERV expression, again, is, is, is happening at very high levels in the embryo, but once the embryo starts going into a stage where the cells begin to differentiate, uh, and you go from the bash, the, mm -hmm. the, 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 uh, the, um, um, you go through this process called gastralization, where you go from the blastula to the gastrula stage of the embryo, the genes that then are, are activating the ERV expression encode proteins that shut it down. Okay. So it's only expressed for a very short time uh, when it's essentially needed to afford that right. protection. So, so anyway, so all of this to say is that, number one, our view of ERV sequences is radically changed from being junk mm -hmm. to now being <laughs> something that is, is, plays an integral role in, in the innate immune system. Right. Uh, now, this means that one way you could interpret ERV sequences is that they reflect evidence for common descent. But as you were already alluding to, Jeff, another way is that this ref reflects common design, mm -hmm. that these sequences were intentionally incorporated into the genome 
to serve in a in a retroviral as a retroviral right. defense. And and so number one is we show that they're functional, but we also explain why they have to be similar mm-hmm. to ERV sequences. And now we can also even explain why we see shared sequences, because as you were pointing out, if you're being exposed to similar kind of pathogens, mm-hmm. you would want those same kind of genes. Uh, so it, it's moving us towards the place where this common design interpretation mm-hmm. is actually on roughly equal footing to, to common descent. Right. And what's interesting is in, in that paper, the researchers noted that the suppressin gene is, is distributed among humans and great apes, but then they interpreted that as saying, well, it is is distributed that way because it's serving a functional role and it's being preserved in the genome mm-hmm. because of its important functional role. Right. So it's not it's still an evolutionary interpretation, but it's moving us <laughs> closer to something that's aligned with a common design view of of where you're you're arguing that the persistence of that gene yeah. is is due to its functional importance. Well, it it seems to have, you know, I mean it, it you know, maybe I haven't I haven't thought as deeply about this, but it seems to be that you've got this scenario where it very well could be that it has all of these immune features and it does all that and there's a history to it. You know, that there's right. certain organisms that were yeah, not infected, but that was where it took hold and that was it was propagated and this is why all of these organisms, you know, humans, right. chimps, great apes, have similar immune systems is because there's a common ancestor to it. But it takes away this potency of uh, the fact that it's not right. simply just this, ooh, there's no reason for it to be here, right. removes that as, oh, it's got to be evolutionary history. Right. It may well be that there's an evo- or there, there's this history to it, right. but it also has this very important design. And I don't know, maybe this is stretching it too far. I was just thinking of, you know, it, it has this capacity, or at least with the suppressant, has the capacity to shield the... Uh, the embryos, the embryonic cells from the virus basically makes it invisible, if you will. Right. It has a way to uh, go out and attack it by right. making it inert, and it also has a way to kind of just suppress the attack, if you will. And yeah. I, I don't know. I was thinking just Top Gun the other day. You know, think it would have planned it. We make it very low radar, yeah, so that it can't be seen. We add missiles so that we go attack, and we add flares so that when something comes, we can. I mean, it's a very similar sort of yeah. immune system right. to what we're designing when we're trying to do things. Yeah, so, yeah. I don't know. Maybe that, I, no. That's a great analogy. I just have Top Gun on my that, head. I like a, that movie. <laughs> yeah. No, no. That's a that's a great analogy. Is yeah. It, it's it's really a multi pronged defense. Mm-hmm. You know, where you're 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 protecting against the retroviral infection at at virtually every stage yeah. of that the viral life cycle. You're, you're doing things to disrupt or frustrate the, mm-hmm. the, the retroviral life cycle. Um, yeah. So it, it, in other words, if I was going to design a, a retroviral defense system, I would probably produce something very similar to what we see, right? You know, or what we're beginning to, to appreciate for endogenous retroviruses. But to me, you know, the, the real significance of this work is that so many people have said, the, again, the distribution of ERV sequences is an open and shut case mm-hmm. for common, common descent. That that you you have to be out of your mind, you know, to to reject the idea of human evolution in light of these ERV 
sequence distributions. And this mm-hmm. is, but now we, we, again, because we see that they're functional, because mm-hmm. we can explain their similarity in, to ERV sequences, and because the distribution now can be made sense of from a design perspective, it, it, it takes away that, that, um, that open and shut case for evolution. It, mm-hmm. it, it, it complicates it most definitely. Well, and it would seem also, too, to make open – instead of it's like, okay, this is an evolutionary explanation. We just got to figure out what's the history, how do we map it out. You kind of now have two competing ways of looking at it, which opens up a whole new slew of scientific questions. Right. You know, I mean, how would you, how would you decipher or discern whether the function came first and the, right. the history came – or? Whether the function came first or whether right. the accident happened and that produced the function, you know, I mean, it, right. it seems like it's a fun, it's a fun scientific problem to solve. Right. Well, and in 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 endemic in the, I mean, well, there's two things that are endemic to the common descent interpretation. One is that these sequences are not functional, mm-hmm. right, and that their ins- insertion is random, and we we know that retroviral insertions are not random. Actually, there's right. data to that to that effect. You know, because the, the, then the question is, well, why would God introduce these mm-hmm. identical non-functional sequences in the same location? You know, that, that doesn't make any sense, right? right? You know, um, uh, but, you know, again, we now have a, a response to that yeah. question. You know, we have a, so... Um, well, that's, anyway, pretty, that's pretty fascinating. So. Yeah, so it's, yeah, so it is a, a Damascus Road experience, I guess, when it comes to ERVs, so... right. All right, well, let, let's go ahead and wrap things up here. Uh, I just want to say thank you for watching this show. Um, and I remind you to go to our website, reasons.org. Follow us on social media, RTB underscore official. Visit our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe One. And again, set the, the notification so that you will be reminded when a new episode of Star Cells and God drops. And uh, I'm just going to say on behalf of Jeff that and I, that, um, and all of us at Reasons to Believe, that the more that we discover about science, the more that we have reasons to believe. Until next time.